This morning we're going to take a look at an issue that relates to every one of us. Now, I generally try to bring a talk that relates to everybody. Uh, I realize sometimes, if I'm talking about marriage, that if you're not married, you think, well, it doesn't really apply to me yet. But this is one of those topics that I promise you applies to every single person in this room. We're going to take a look at the issue of conflict and how to resolve in a healthy and a holy way. Conflict. Now, do not raise your hand. Do not punch anybody in the ribs next to you. But if I ask you to raise your hand, I bet every one of you would say, man, I, I've experienced some conflict this week. Maybe a little, maybe a lot, maybe intense, maybe not so intense, but conflict happens all the time. And so this topic matters to all of us, because even if you're a mild-mannered, kind, gentle, nice, sweet person, uh, you still have to deal with the realities of conflict. It might be in your marriage, in a relationship. We've got some pictures here I'll show you. Could be that you're dealing with this kind of conflict and relationship. Could be you're dealing with it at, at work. That's not a good meeting there in the conference break room. Uh, lots of times we have conflict with people that we work at. Could be conflict uh, that happens with yourself. That's really a weird picture, isn't it? But self-conflict, and I'm not really going to go there today, but sometimes we have all this internal conflict that we're dealing with. And then, of course, there's the inevitable conflict with zombies. I just had to throw that one in there for fun. But the truth is, some of us have conflict with, with dead people, with people that don't even live anymore, and yet we still have conflict with them. We all have conflict. It's kind of like junk mail. It happens, and it's, it's just way more irritating than junk mail. So the bigger issue for us is how do we deal with it? All right, we all have conflict. Thanks for bringing that up, Pastor Kurt. I feel pretty bad already. But let me, this morning, unpack some things about how we should deal with it. But before we go there, let's just identify at least four ways that we tend to deal with conflict that are not healthy. They're not good ways. They're not productive and holy ways of dealing with conflict. For some of us, when we face conflict, we, we withdraw and resent. We get in the midst of conflict and we turn a cold sho shoulder to whomever has offended us and we just walk away. Uh, people like that who tend to withdraw and resent, their pattern is to leave. They leave a friendship, they leave a marriage, they leave a job. Uh, they probably had, you know, 20 jobs in 20 years. Um, frankly, they, sometimes they leave a church. Rather than work through the conflict, they just bail. Uh, they're the ones who love to use the unfriend, you know, part of Facebook. And they just, not fine, I'll just write you out of my life. They withdraw and they resent. Here's a, a second way some deal with it, and this is not healthy either. Some stuff their feelings. They stuff conflict. They bury their emotions and they just get bitter. And I'm here to tell you getting bitter is never better. It's not a good plan. And you all, I bet you, every one of you know somebody uh, that maybe you've been around them for a long time, maybe it's just a new relationship, and you know that person's bitter. And I, I can guarantee you it probably started with some conflict in their life. They don't want to face, so they stuff. They don't want to face conflict, so they ignore it. But tragically, it eats at them like a magnet eats a dead fle flesh. And I know that's a gross picture, but it's, it's a gross experience as well. The third way some deal with this, and this is the way I used to deal with it on a regular basis, this is the way I grew up and the home I grew up in, is some they deal with conflict by exploding. Their way of dealing with conflict is to have a temper tantrum. And uh, you push the wrong button even a little bit in this person and they're going to go off on you big time. And like a two-year-old who's been told to eat their broccoli, they won't get dessert. They just go ballistic and all hell breaks loose. So some explode when they have conflict. And again, I hope you know this, that's not healthy. That's not a good way to deal with it. And then the last way that's unholy, unhealthy, that I want to address this morning just briefly is that some deflect and redirect. 
They deflect and redirect. They immediately go to the yeah buts. I'm going to write a blog post soon and probably a chapter in my next book about this whole issue of the, the, the curse of the yeah buts. Uh, they say, yeah, I did that, but you said that. Or, yeah, I, I did, I said that, but it's your fault. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that, but it's not my, I, I can't be responsible for my actions because somebody else did something to me. There's a yeah, but, yeah, I know I blew it. And here's one that I really get frustrated with. Yeah, I blew it, but it's just not that big a deal. You're bleeding, you're dying on the side of the road somewhere, and they're like, whatever, just get over it. It's not that big a deal. They deflect and they redirect. Now, in our more moment, uh, rational moments of reflection, when we're actually not in the midst of conflict, uh, we all know that none of these four ways I identified, and there are probably a few other variations, but we all know that none of those are good ways of dealing with conflict, that they're not healthy and they're not helpful. But the truth is, all of us, and I have never met a person, if you're the person who's never experienced any of these, come introduce yourself to me, because I'd love to meet somebody that holy. Because all of us have, at one time or another, done one of these things in some form. And some of us have done all four of these things. So the truth is, they don't work. They don't work because they don't address the real issue. They don't help. They don't develop or maintain healthy and wholesome relationships. Those are the things we don't want to do. Let's take a look at some things we should do. And let's dive into James chapter 4, uh, uh, verse 1. James 4, 1. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, let me insert some of you are thinking, my wife... My husband, uh, we'll get there, hold that thought. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, maybe it's literal, but maybe it's you kill a relationship. Maybe you kill uh, uh, somebody emotionally. You don't get what you want, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James asks a very important question here. What causes conflict? And this is an important question because it addresses the first thing that we must do if we're going to resolve it. So here's the first thing if you're taking notes today. To resolve conflict, we must recognize what causes conflict. To resolve it, we must recognize what causes. Now, you would think that's a duh, of course, but all too often we get right past the cause and we're in the midst of it. We don't stop. We don't take a time out. We don't pause to ask the question, what is going on here? Why is this happening? And what causes conflict? Well, James identifies it here. It's not your spouse. It's not your friend. It's not somebody else. It's evil or unholy desires within you, within us. James says there's a battle raging within us. And so somewhere along the way, somehow in the relationship, it became all about you. Now, maybe that's not where you live all the time. But in this moment of conflict, it became more about you and what you wanted without any concern or care for the other person. And by the way, that's unholy. And James says here that we're to take our desires to God. So here's the thing I want you to understand. Desires are not automatically wrong. We all have desires. Desires can be good. But James says even good desires go wrong. They're not holy. They're not helpful when we are designing something for the wrong reason. He says take your desires to God. And though that's a good thing, the truth is when we go with wrong motives just to satisfy our own wants and our own pleasures, then we've missed the mark. And so the very first thing we must do, and you cannot skip this step in the process, when you're in the middle of conflict, somehow... Find a moment, take a time out, and ask the question, what's going on here? 
What's the cause behind this? I've mentioned this many times before, that sometimes, often, the issue is not the issue. The thing that's going on here that's causing all this and you know, tension and yelling and screaming between you, really it's not the root cause, it's not the issue. And so you've got to stop. What's going on? Recognize the cause. And the Bible says, and this is consistent throughout the Word, that the cause is this evil, human, old nature within us that we all wrestle with. As long as we're in these earth suits on this planet, even though you're a loving Jesus fanatic, the Bible says there's still this battle raging within us with the old nature. And so we've got to recognize what's causing, what in me is unholy right now? Here's the next thing that's necessary for resolving conflict. We must own our part, our selfishness, and our sin. We've got to own our stuff. In other words, we've got to take personal responsibility. I want to suggest to you that in our culture today, this is not very common. We tend to want to blame anybody and everybody else. Now, have we been sinned against? Yes, the answer is yes, we have. Of course we have. Have, have, have evil things happened to us that we had no control over? Absolutely, I understand that. And I'm not dealing with that and focused on that or that person right now. What I'm dealing with is there, there, there has to come this point where we are willing to take personal responsibility for our part in the conflict. James chapter 4 here in these first three verses Depends on which translation you're using, but in my Bible, James uses the word you 14 times. Anybody pick that up as we read through it? He doesn't say him, her, they, them. It says you 14 times in three verses. He's dealing with you, with me. And his point is own it. If I could translate this in a paraphrase, it would be own your crap. Crap's a Hebrew word, by the way. I say, own your stuff. And James, you know, makes it clear here. We've got to take personal responsibility. Now, there may very well be other things, other issues, other problems. There may be something wrong with your husband, with your spouse, with your best friend, with your boss. Certainly, that's probable and possible. But before we worry about that, we've got to go right here and own our stuff. Jesus addressed this issue, in case you're wondering. Luke chapter 6, verse 41 to 43, Luke 6, 41 to 43. He says, why do you worry about the speck, the speck of sawdust in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying, friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? And Jesus, who didn't mince words very often, said, hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Now notice here, Jesus didn't say ignore the other guy's stuff, the other guy's sin. We don't ignore that. But he's putting some priority to owning our stuff. He says, he makes it clear, we need to deal with what's in our eye first. We need to deal with the log in our own eye first rather than worry about the speck that's in our friend's or spouse's eye. My wife and I, uh, we're having a knockdown, drag out fight. Yes, we do fight. No, I'm not going to tell you what it was about. It's none of your business. Now, of course, I was right and she was wrong. <laughs> Probably not. But she brought, my dear wife brought a very quick resolution to the conflict when she calmly said, you're right, sweetheart. Uh, I need to work on that. She took the fight right out of my sails. And I, oh, no, you're not going to go there. You're not going to take the high road on me. 
But she did exactly what Solomon says we ought to do, we ought to do in Proverbs 15.1. This is a verse some of you ought to memorize. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh, biting, you know, yo, yeah, well, you said that, watch what I'm going to say, only stirs up anger, only makes things worse. You know, it's really hard. I have experienced this in my relationship with this woman uh, for about, well, we've actually been boyfriend, girlfriend, or married for 40 years now almost. Uh, and I've experienced it many times, but it's hard when someone takes the high road and calmly owns their part without excuse. You want to you just defuse a situation pretty quickly. Own your stuff. Take responsibility. And here's the thing. I think there's always something we can take responsibility for. Call me crazy, but I think there's always something that we can own. It might be 1% of the problem. It might be 10%. It might be 49%. It might be 51%. It could be whatever it is. We can take responsibility for our part. Because we're never without at least a measure of sin. And Jesus said it, not me. He said, deal with this first. Deal with the log in your own eye before you worry about the speck in the other person's. Let me remind you of something John wrote in 1 John 1, 8. He said, if we claim we have no sin, I haven't done anything wrong. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. The simple fact is that often conflict can be resolved when someone takes the lead and takes ownership and takes the high road. And so here's a little phrase I want you to remember. Write it down if you're taking notes. Rather than blame, own. Instead of accusing, admit. Rather than blame, it's your fault, I can't believe you. Rather than blame, own. And instead of accusing, admit. Admit your part. Don't point the finger or give the finger, but look them in the eye and say, please forgive me for my part in this. I've said it a gazillion times. I've said it so often, I stand by it. Being right is never more important than being relational. Being relational is more important than being right. Now, that doesn't mean that being right is unimportant. I've had people say, I can't believe you don't believe in standards. I'm not saying that. Of course there's standards. Of course there's a right and a wrong. Yes, absolutely. The Bible's clear about that. There's a standard. There's stuff that's okay. There's stuff that's not okay. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying when it, that's more important to be relational than right, that, it, that being right's unimportant. I'm just saying that when we make being right the first thing, without concern for being relational, then we're wrong. When we make being right the first thing, and it's more important that I get proven right, and that I'm right, and that you understand I'm right, than being relational, then we've, we've gone off track. And by the way, in case you wonder where I got such a crazy idea, read the Gospels. The Pharisees were right. They were the most righteous, holy, right-living people on the planet. But they were dead wrong because they had lost the relational component with God and the relational component with people. And I, a couple months ago, I was at the... Uh, in Jerusalem, I was at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. And I actually went back there several times. And if you're not familiar with what that is, it's actually a, a, a part of the wall that literally was there when Jesus was there at the, at the temple. It was the temple that was destroyed in AD 70. It is the most holiest place on the planet for the Jews, hands down. Millions of Jewish people show up there every year, millions. 
and it's open 24-7, and they come there, and they pray, and they put little notes of prayer requests in the paper in the walls, and it, it, it's, it's an incredible experience, and it was powerful for me. But here's one of the things that struck me. There are about three or four things that God did in my heart. I went back there four times. But the first time I stood there at that wall, I wept, and I wept for the, the Jews that were all around me, the righteous, the ones who thought they were doing it all right, and the Hasidic Jews with all their curls and all their garb and all their, their rules and regulations, and yet they are so far from God, far from relationship with Him, meaningful relationship with the Messiah, with their Savior. They were right, but they were wrong because they weren't relational. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 18. I love the chapter of Romans. Uh, several of you uh, emailed me this week and mentioned that you went through Psalm 84 <clears throat> this last week, which I suggested in your devotions, and God spoke to you. That was awesome. I want to suggest that you go through Romans 12 this week. You know, I just like throwing it out there. You want a passage to land on? By the way, I've read through the Bible, I don't know how many times, many, 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 many times, but I love to go to a passage and just kind of camp out now. I'll, I, I'll find myself in a paragraph or in a chapter, and I'll read it again and again. I'll read five or six or seven different translations of it, and I'll just let it simmer in my soul. Go to Romans 12 this week and let this, that chapter simmer in your soul. But Romans 12, 18, Paul says, do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. There's the you again. Do all that you can to live at peace with everyone. Doing all that you can absolutely includes taking responsibility for all that you can take responsibility for. And often that diffuses and de-escalates the conflict that you're in. First, recognize the cause. Second, own your part. Here's the third thing we must do. We must humble, be humble and honor others above ourselves. We must be humble and honor others above ourselves. Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. It says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now that verse ought to just jar some of us to, you know, to just to being unbelievably aware of something that some of us don't live with. It says here, God opposes. means he resists. means, in fact, it's, it's, uh, it's a word in the original language of the Bible that means God is actually ready for battle. <laughs> he's, he's dressed, ready to duke it out with you. God opposes the proud, but he shows favor, grace, kindness, mercy, favor to the humble. And in verse 10, he writes, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. James challenges us to not be proud. He says, don't be proud, be humble. And again, Romans 12, verse 9 and 10 says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. And listen to verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. To honor means to esteem and to value. It means that you, out of devoted love for that person, put the other person first. You honor them so much that you put them first. You recognize their value, and so you place in them honor. And you treat them as someone more important than you are. That's what it means to honor somebody. That's humbling. And so rather than demand our way or the highway, which, have you noticed, that always causes conflict? How many of you figured that out? It always does. Rather than demand your way or the highway, we practice otherliness, which is not a word you'll find in the dictionary, but it's one I like to use. Otherliness. I'm more focused on you than I am on me. I'm more concerned about you than I am myself. Rather than argue and fight and quarrel, 
because we're not getting our needs and our wants and our desires met, which never ends well for anybody out of love. We lay our lives down for the benefit of another. And if you think this is easy to do, you're not paying attention. You haven't lived this way. This is really hard. It's hard to lay your life down. It's hard to put others before yourself. Because our human nature wants it. It's all about me, 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 what I need, but, 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 but. I've got, I need, I have. And the Bible says, yes, it doesn't deny those realities. But it says, but I want you to live in the way that Jesus lived, who didn't come to serve, but to, 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 to be served, but to serve others and to lay his life down. It's a ransom for many. To um, illustrate this humbleness, I want to show you a clip from a classic film that uh, many of you have probably seen. It's from Princess Bride. Let's watch this together. The Princess Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter 1. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding a horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy? Polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said. Farm boy, fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Farm boy. Fetch me that picture. I know that some of you might react to that. Some of the ladies go, oh, wouldn't it be nice if my husband actually said as you wish to me all the time? <clears throat> but uh, some of you think that's just, I, I can never be that doormat. That's inconceivable. No way I can go there. And I want to be clear about something. By no means am I suggesting that we live without healthy boundaries uh, or without reasonable expectations. I'm not suggesting that. But I want you to notice something. I just love that old movie. It's fine. It's a classic. But... The farm boy didn't feel abused or taken advantage of by Buttercup because to honor her was to love her. To honor the princess bride was to love the princess. And the problem comes, let's just get real, let's be honest. The problem comes when we desperately and selfishly want something so bad that we refuse to put the needs of someone else before our own needs. Every time that's going to lead to conflict. Every time. And I want to suggest that the more we live with honor and humility, the less we'll live with horrible conflict. Let me say it again. The more you and I live with honor and humility, the less we're going to live in horrible conflict. There are a lot of skills 
that we can and should learn to resolve conflict, and I don't have the time to unpack them all, but let me cover one more thing that will help. How can we better resolve conflict in our relationships? And this one's important, the last one. Affirm and reaffirm your unconditional love for people before, in the midst of, and after the conflict. Affirm and reaffirm your unconditional love right in the midst of it all. Conflict happens. I think we've all agreed to that so far. It happens. Uh, put two people together for a lifetime, and it doesn't matter how sweet my wife is, there's going to be conflict. Uh, put four kids in the mix with us. We had a family of six, and my goodness, uh, conflict was unavoidable. But one of the great keys to resolving conflict, and this is one of the great keys that's often not even considered in all the conflict books and how to resolve conflict books that you'll find out there, is knowing this, is living with this, that you only have one other option if you don't resolve it, and that's living together in misery. Now listen carefully. One of the keys to resolving conflict is understanding that if I don't resolve it, I only have one other option, that is to live together for the rest of my life in misery. See, when there's no third option of cutting that person out of your life and walking away, then you have an incredible motivation to figure things out, to work it out. You know, there are times in my marriage um, with Laura that I don't think I even liked her, let alone practice love. But a long time ago, we took the D word, divorce, off the table. We took it off the table. She knows that she's stuck with me no matter what. And I know that regardless of what may come, even if the boat sinks, we're going down together. And here's the deal. You think, well, that just doesn't, that's not right. And I have, yes, no way. And let me tell you, when you live mutually, and that's important, it's got to be on both parties. But when you live with that deep commitment, then you are going to do anything and everything you can to figure out how to play nice and resolve conflict. Because once you take divorce out of the equation, Again, you only have two options. One is, we're going to figure this out and we're going to get better or we're going to really, really be miserable for a long time. And so you're motivated. Now, I know a lot of you have been divorced. I understand that. And again, I understand that it takes two with this level of unconditional love and commitment to each other for this to work. And I realize that things happen completely out of our control. I understand that. I have empathy for you. I have compassion for you. Please don't feel guilt when I say this statement. But here's, here's the ideal. I mean, God gives us a standard. He says, here's what I want for you. And the ideal, the way he expects us to live, is that we live with this deep and abiding commitment to the relationship. That's not based on being happy or conflict-free. That's not based on things going the way we want them to go. But it's based on a commitment that we've made to each other. But no matter what, we're going to figure this out because I don't want to live in misery for the rest of my life. And you will, with that kind of motivation. When you say to your spouse, to your parent, to your child, and boy, this happens in a lot of relationships, listen, we're going to figure this out because I'm not going anywhere. Because I love you. And I don't, I don't really like you right now. But we're going to figure this out because the alternative is not even an option for me. And you will. You'll figure it out. You'll get help. And you'll work hard together. And it is work which is why the, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 14, and I'm almost done with this. He said, work, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. Work, Hebrews 12, 14, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a 
holy life. Point is, it's work. It's going to be work. It's always going to be work. You're never getting, some of you thinking, well, if I can just get to, you know, 38 years like Pastor Kurt and Laura, I'm sure we'll be fine. You're going to always have the opportunity to grow. You're always going to have the opportunity to work. You know, as long as we're in these earth suits, that's the reality. A couple came to me many years ago. And in fact, was on staff at Life Center. And they walked in my office, sat down, and the first thing out of their mouth was, we hate each other. Not a real fun way to start a counseling appointment. And it was obvious, you know, they both had their arms folded and the body language and their tone and everything was, man, why didn't you come see somebody a year ago? It just breaks my heart when people wait so long. But we hate each other. And I just had a moment, uh, sometimes I have actually, you know, brilliant ideas. Uh, it was a God moment, I'll give God the credit, but I, I just, I, I looked at him and I said, then why are you here? And they were like, well, pastors don't, you know, but, well, obviously, I said, no, no, why are you here? And they said something, I said, no, listen to me, have you given up? Have you thrown in the towel, are you both done in this? And they looked at each other and they looked at me and I, and, and, and I said, because if you have and you're not willing to work, then there's not a whole lot I can do for you. I'll pray that there's a miracle that somehow God does something that goes way beyond what anything I could do, anybody else could do. But here, I learned this lesson a long time ago. I can never work harder than the couple. And I won't work harder than the couple. So I said, are you willing to work at this? And again, they looked at each other, and they looked back at me, and they said, that's why we're here. And you know what? They're doing good today. They went through two years of pretty much misery in their relationship. It was hard road back but they're doing good today because they understood that it's work. And they took D, divorce, off the table and said, well, if my option is live in misery or figure this out, guess what? I'm going to figure this out. It's work. And that's my prayer for you is that you'll get that idea and work at your relationships this week. Barry, let me pray for you. <clears throat> Father, I, um, <laughs> I do know that this is challenging for all of us because we all hear this and view uh, your word through the filters of our experience. Some sitting in this room right now or listening online or listening on the radio, some of them, Lord, are there in the midst of horrible conflict. And it's, 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 it's eating their lunch. It's destroying their soul. And they're wounded. And it's hard for them to hear what I've said today because the filter that they have is so broken and so wounded and so devastated. Jesus, for them... I pray that you would do what only you can do. Reach in and touch that spot, that, that spot, that place in their heart that needs your touch, that needs hope, that needs healing. Reach into that place in their mind and their soul and their life that only you can reach to and touch and bring the hope of God right now. And help them to understand, God, that you are right there with them in the midst of this pain. And begin to bring healing to their heart. Lord, some have gone through conflict and relationships have been broken and perhaps forever. And it's way, uh, it's been years, decades perhaps for some. I pray for them, Lord, that they, today, that they would not look back and look back with shame or guilt. Do not let the enemy trap them in guilt, Lord. I pray that they would right now just, that even in this moment, that they would own whatever they need to own, confess whatever they need to confess, and then move forward. And the grace that is theirs and the freedom that is theirs to experience your life today and tomorrow and to not be trapped by their past. And Lord, all of us are going to experience conflict uh, with a boss, a kid, a neighbor, a 
spouse, a pastor. It's going to happen. And when it does, Lord, would you help us to begin to grow and put some of these very practical things from James into place in our life. Change us, Lord. Make us more like you, Jesus. Keep your head bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet started your walk as a Christ follower. And you've been in conflict with God. You've argued with him. You've fought with him. You've denied him. You've deflected. You know, you've redirected. You've really put him off. But today, you realize it's time for that conflict to be resolved and for you to say yes to him and to embrace his gift of grace and mercy in your life and to follow him. And you just know, yep, it's time. I've tried this. I've fought. It's time to yield, to surrender my life to him. Now, if that's you, just make this prayer yours. Father, I come to you today asking you to forgive me of my sin, and I have sin. I, I take responsibility for my failure, for my life, and yet I thank you, God, that you sent Jesus to take the penalty for my sin, but I don't have to take that. And so I embrace the grace that comes from the cross of Jesus, from the life that he gave for me, and I receive your forgiveness right now. And I say yes to you and choose to follow you right now. That's you, in your own way, in your own heart, to say, yes, God, that's me, and I want to follow you. And the Bible says that second, that moment you say yes to him, you become his child forever. Lord, thank you for those that are making that decision. Show them what it means. Show them that it's the beginning of a journey that takes them into eternity with you. But work in their heart, seal it in their heart, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with the last song of worship this morning. As a part of our worship, we like to give at this stage in our service. And if you're a guest today, please don't feel obligated to give. But uh, give to support what God's doing. Give as an act of worship. Let's uh, do this one last song. I'll come back and wrap it up. Hey, a couple things before you go today. If you began your life as a Christ follower, tell somebody, let me know. Uh, we want to pray with you. Uh, there's by the doors on the tables, it says for new believers, it's a packet. Get a Bible, some material, you just tell you walk with Jesus. Please pick one of those up. Prayer tip would be down front. There's communion available on both sides of the room. And I was thinking about how to wrap this up today. And uh, I have an odd sort of blessing. You ready for it? May you go experience lots of conflict this week. <laughs> so that you can learn to put this better in place and practice in your life. God bless you guys. Go have fun. Thanks for coming today.